the BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. This is the Gemable Mechanisms podcast. I'm Brian Munzman. I'm speaking today to the winner of the 2021 BCS Society Medal. It's Professor Penny Endersby. Um, welcome, first of all, um, Penny. Thank you, and lovely to talk to you all. Uh, you, you've been awarded the uh, 2021 Society Medal. I think this is the second one. It's a fairly new uh, thing, but it's very much focused on people that have made positive contributions. So first of all, your reaction to, to getting the award, out of the blue or? <laughs> it was completely out of the blue. I was utterly stunned. Um, I was really, really delighted. And I guess my, my strongest other reaction is because it really is about IT that benefits society. This is definitely one where I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's some, there's many, many teams in the Met Office that have contributed to all the things that were mentioned. So I, I'd like right up front to credit all the other people that I'm representing when I accept this one. Oh, that's nice. Well, thank you very much. Now, uh, this was largely about the, the accuracy of the climate modelling that you're doing and, of course, the way it fits into the climate change um uh, debate. So can you tell us a little bit about just about the system at, uh, at a general level? Yes, absolutely. So obviously, um, in order to produce accurate weather and climate models, it's an immensely numerically challenging um, uh, problem set to solve. So you're solving a, um, a, a series of Navier-Stokes equations that are very um, that are chaotic and that you, you want you want as much compute power to throw at it as you possibly can. And all the advances actually that we've made in weather and climate forecasting over decades have been built on Moore's law and on um, the availability of more compute. We are improving the physics all the time as well. Um, but what we really want is finer grids, shorter time steps, more bigger ensembles and all of those. You can never give a climate scientist too much compute. Um, and then out of that has come what really is a world leading model which contributes to all the predictions that fed into COP, into the IPCC reports um, that tell you what you can expect under different emission scenarios for what the climate will do and what the impacts will be. And that's a core part of what the Met Office delivers both to the UK government, but also internationally. And you're, you're moving this on a little bit because you've got another sort of supercomputer computer coming online. Is that a replacement or an enhancement or... Uh, well, it's both. So I, I think we're currently on our 14th supercomputer at the okay. office. Um, and this one is getting long in the tooth. Um, it was state of the art when it was acquired. So, yes, we have a contract with Microsoft to provide actually our next two generations of compute for 10 years that will be bigger and faster and enable us to do that. Um, the next step of finer resolution, but also of the, the sort of some of the next things that are coming up in climate modelling are sort of whole earth systems. So taking into account more more aspects of how the whole of the earth behaves, so oceans, ice, mountains, um, land use, all those things at finer details so that we can really tell the difference that different interventions will make. It's really interesting. Uh, is it a supercomputer in the sort of old classical sense that you actually have a a device on premises or is it actually delivered via cloud infrastructure? Uh, so very good question. Our current one is a device owned by us um, and on our premises. Generation one of the next supercomputer will be um, leased from Microsoft on their premises mm -hmm. uh, and generation two may well be cloud but we that's some some seven years or so often so we've had to specify that very loosely and we'll have to re-specify that nearer the time we anticipate that weather and climate modeling will move into the cloud because there's just such vast amount of data 
the, you're going to need the compute next to the data um, for data proximate reasons. Mm. Um, and so we anticipate that as the, the modeling gets finer and the computers get bigger, cloud will be the only solution actually to en enable us to continue to advance. I imagine you're taking a fairly sort of medium, maybe even long term view of, of the sort of fundamental science behind the computing. You mentioned Moore's law. Obviously, that's, you know, we're coming to the physical limits now, aren't we, of, of that. What are you looking at beyond? Uh, so you're right, we are. And in fact, the architectures are all changing as well. And um, our unified model, which we currently do all our weather and climate modelling on, um, it took its first time step. The month I graduated in June 1991, and it's on its 45th upgrade, we're actually having to rewrite that for future architectures. And it's, I think it's three million years of code, and it's a multi-year project mm. to be more scalable, more architecture independent. Um, the idea is we should trial this on the next generation and run it on the, the second generation. Um, so we're really having to relook at the way we do um, this, this modelling, and that that takes a lot of time and will need to be fully validated before we switch off anything we currently do. Of course. Are you looking at the potential of quantum computing? Oddly, not so much. Um, quantum computing is a, a fantastic um, technology for lots of things, but its big advantage at the moment is its ability to be massively parallel. Mm. And weather modelling is inherently very serial. So you, you get the state of the atmosphere as it is now, as finely as you possibly can. That's what our two billion observations a day give us. And then you step it forward. And because it's chaotic, as you step it forward, and you don't know the starting point perfectly, as you step it forward, then um, the, if you do it several times with slightly different starting points, the models diverge. Mm. And that gives you your ensemble. And it is a really serial problem. So we don't anticipate being an early use case for quantum at all. But there has been some application of quantum to Navier-Stokes, but it's, I, I think it's not going to happen before I retire. Okay, well, that's really interesting. The ultimate serial application almost you're looking at there, aren't you? That's yeah. really interesting. So compared with my my previous work around um, in in um, in the defence sector uh, around crypto or um, quantum navigation or um, and replacements for GPS, those sorts of things, where mm. quantum was a, a very live technology, we were very much looking at um, actually in weather. We think we'll be late adopters. Um, and we're we're just very much observing it from the sidelines. I'm, it's, I, I have repeatedly asked the question to make sure we're not missing out on something we yes, should be building skills in. Um, but this, we think we're we're many years off. Oh, interesting. Uh, how how has your analysis um, shown how much more accurate you can be with your predictions? Like you must look at these things sort of backwards and going forwards and all sorts. Of the fantastic thing about weather forecasting, as opposed to climate, is that you get ground truth the next day. So mm. compared with many people, we are really able to measure how accurate we are. And you know, is the weather forecast right? Isn't it a simple question, um, mm. actually, because we measure in many locations, we measure many characteristics, we have different tolerances. Um, but uh, that over time has got better at a day, a decade. So um, your five day forecast now is as good as your one day forecast was 40 years ago. Um, and a lot of that has been built on Moore's law, but we still believe that we can continue that trajectory and we'll be applying a range of different techniques. So not just brute force extra compute, but also things like um, um, AI and machine learning mm. um, to continue to enhance um, that, that 
accuracy and it's absolutely it's what we're held to account for and it's what brings us the benefit um the the you know the return on investment that makes it worth government putting a billion pounds into our supercomputer yeah um it's because they get many many billion pounds of benefit across all over um national life because the weather and climate affects everything and a lot of that benefit comes from climate prediction and um good good adaptation design and avoidance of damage I would imagine there's also still a little bit of sympathy for for the Michael Fish scenario, isn't there as well? <laughs> um, we hope to stop hearing about that. And I, I was in sixth form when that happened. Right. Um, and you're obviously you're talking to me today, and I don't know when this podcast will go out, but we're between um, the two storms we named on one day, which is the first time we've ever done that. Dudley yeah. yesterday, Eunice tomorrow, mm. um, and our ability to forecast these things days in advance. Now, I think we named those on Monday and Eunice is on Friday. Yes. And even as of last time I saw the charts, I couldn't see Eunice on the charts yet. Um, it was right. just one little dot. It isn't a great big storm zooming across the Atlantic, which we do also get and you can track. So the models are amazing. They're, you know, they picked up Dudley long before there was anything to see on satellite over on the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. Um, and they're following what the jet stream will do. Um, so our ability to do to do those kinds of big forecasting is infinitely better than it was yeah. in 1987. The things that really challenge us now are um, things like um, heavy, what we call convective, but um, I know that's not a that's not a computer scientist word, so you know, torrential thundery downpours that are in small spots, and we know they're going to happen, but saying exactly where they're going to happen long in advance, that's very difficult still, and that's where the finer resolution can really help you. And it is an aspect of climate change. We know those are going to be more intense and worse. And getting them the right side of the watershed in time to do anything about them is the kind of challenge we'd hope to be resolving now. Yes, yeah, so I think we should move on to the climate, the, the climate sort of change uh, aspect of the conversation. But before I do that, is it your data that goes into the, the, the normal applications that you're using on a day to day basis, like on my phone for weather and that to do, do our um, organizations have like APIs coming into you and yeah, very, so very, very likely I mean, it should, it's, it's APIs coming out of us I think yes, um, yeah. I, I would very much hope and if you are <laughs> not using the Get Office app on your phone you should be and so should all your listeners <laughs> uh, um, but even if you're not using the, the Met Office app chances are it is fed at least in part by our models yes um and um so yes and, and those are made available through APIs we actually use AWS to serve our data. Um, so we've been doing our, our production in the cloud for some years now, um, and that's taken up by all kinds of different users, some specialists, some non-specialists, and increasingly by machines. And that's that's what we anticipate, that a lot of this will be, the whole process will be automated all the way through, yeah. um, all the way through to the user. Interesting. Now, obviously, let's look at that larger issue then, because uh, the, the climate change thing is, you know, quite rightly on, on everybody's mind. We know at BCS that um, putting together a lot of different technologies can actually bring huge benefits. For example, one of our winners in our, in our uh, IT awards was, uh, was uh, looking at rain data and things like that to predict outbreaks of dengue fever. 
we have used um, weather and climate predictions for disease predictions in partnership with other people through some of our overseas development work and cholera in Yemen is one of our use cases. That there's so much more benefit to this than just looking at the weather, isn't there? So what, how do you see, and indeed, how does it work with, with your huge number crunching into that larger climate conversation? Um, obviously, we partner with lots and lots of people to provide the information they need in many different ways. And I suppose our core product is the UK climate predictions. And those are now available down to two kilometres over, over many years. And they're available, they're funded by DEFRA, they're available free in detail to everybody. So if you whether you're designing a coastal defence or a hospital or a transport system, you will have the opportunity to say, you know, how frequently are different sorts of severe weather and events um, likely to affect you in what way over the next 50 years, um, depending on the um, the amount of warming that we see. So um, obviously we're looking at sort of four years of worst case or, or, or whatever, out to 2100 and, and better cases than that. So that's one bit. But there's, yes, then we do do many other aspects, including overseas, looking at helping people decide what crops they might be able to plant in the future. Um, looking at working with disease predictions. We, we did put some work into climate dependencies or weather dependencies of COVID and some of the research that was done through the World Meteorological Organization there as well. So there's there's many other ways that we can produce this data. It's produced once used many times according to the the interests of the people. How do you envisage your, your updated infrastructure having more of an impact? Well, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is how the agreements that came out of COP26 affect what we need to be able to do. So, for example, mm. there's an, an agreement on methane reduction and I'm trying to do that quickly because it's powerful but short-lived greenhouse gas. Right. Um, and so we therefore need to be able to um, establish trading that against carbon dioxide levels if you're going to put a certain amount of investment into um, taking one or the other out and uh, seeing what, what impact that will have, as well as some aspects on the monitoring of methane emissions as well, which we can do through our observations. Can we talk a little bit about your um, career today? Because, you know, members are interested in this kind of stuff. You're in a, you're in a very interesting uh, job. Uh, I just wondered, you know, what's led you to where you are at the moment? Well, I certainly haven't followed a very linear route and I did not start, as most people my age, you know, in my early 50s, um, didn't in computing because it was a very niche, very niche occupation at the point when I was at university. So I read physics at Cambridge okay. and I was actually sponsored through my degree by British Gas and I worked with them for a short time. But the bulk of my career I'm actually spent in defence. And the first 10 years, I was an armour researcher. So I was blowing stuff up and designing better armours for fighting vehicles. Okay. Um, that, was, that was my real deep expertise as a research scientist. That's what I did. And then I moved from that. I, I worked at what is now the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, first in Kent and then at Porton Down, which is what most people have heard of. Mm. And I led various groups there, ending up with leading the physics department during the wars in Afghanistan um, and Iraq. And then I had the opportunity to take on what was a new cyber department, then, then Cyber and Information Directorate Division. And I could see that this was where a lot of the exciting new things were going to happen in defence. And I jumped at that chance. And so it was about 2012 that I really started moving my career towards cyber information, digital data um, and, and those aspects. And then I've been at the Met Office. I joined the Met Office as chief executive three years ago. 
and I was able to bring from that a whole range of my different both science leadership experience but also um, so actually the kind of hydrodynamic modelling that you do for weather is similar to what you do for armour events so I've done some of that I've worked in um, space and observations and radars I've worked in digital and data and big data and AI so although I'm absolutely not a weather and climate expert and I employ hundreds of them who are much better than I am at it <laughs> um, I definitely brought a lot of both physics and tech understanding yeah. Um, as well as the science leadership experience to the to the role that I have, which is a simply fantastic job, which I love um, and I'm proud to do and is fascinating every day and, and delivers life saving things every day. Um, the listeners can't see you, but I can see your enthusiasm as you're speaking to me. Hopefully they can hear me and I sound like I mean it. You you do indeed. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, can I ask you about your experience in, in the diversity space? Because, you know, you, you're a woman in a really cool job and, and that's worth championing sadly that's still worth championing even now isn't it what's your experience of the diversity sort of issues so it's something I've done lots of work on on leaders my way through I mean when I came in as an armor scientist I was really in the minority mm. and although I think I've been on the whole I've been very fortunate in the support and, and leadership that I've had and having a few bad experiences but there, there, there were some I can remember you know, putting bikinis on page three girls on the wall of the place where I was building armor targets every day yeah. or um or actually and I think this is even sillier dragging heavy ammunition boxes across the floor to stand on detonators off shelves that were too high for me you can't see even online and the listeners can't see but I'm four foot eleven um, <laughs> wow all right uh, so I, I did have you know certainly challenges early on and I think I'm a fairly robust and resilient person but I wouldn't want to see other people having to contend with those um, I hope the no. workplace has moved on and I, I know it certainly has in DSTL as a leader and going through my career I've really realized how much of a difference you can make to both the talent you can hire and its fate and its ability to give of its best mm. if you are not creating an environment where for whatever reason people are excluded or made uncomfortable and that goes far beyond gender. So gender is inevitably where I started and I get asked to talk about it lots. And I am yes. the first female chief executive of the Met Office. Um, and I was proud to have my own little bit of glass ceiling. But actually, I'm interested in every characteristic and you know, race and sexuality um, and disability, but also the less obvious ones like social, social diversity and thinking styles. And I'm sure you have in your membership and we have in our employee, lots of people from the neurodiverse community because yes. they bring a very particular set of um, talents and skills and, and um, abilities that sit very well with the information science domain um, and that needs to be accounted for in, in what we do as an employer, uh, how we communicate, how we support. It's been very challenging through Covid because uncertainty is something that's a bit difficult particularly for people with autism to deal with. As a leader certainty is not the thing I've been able to offer very much. No, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any sort of things that you would normally say in terms of tips to those that perhaps are in, in some sort of minority as to how to progress and, and deal with situations they might come up against? I think that people have, as much as they can, a responsibility to say, to let people know, because you can't always intuit when you've made something difficult for people. Mm. But I'm always wary of putting the onus on the person who is on the receiving end yeah um, so I think the first onus is on leadership to create an environment where it's 
safe to put your hand up and say that something unpleasant has happened to you um, or something's being made difficult for you that people may not see. And as I've worked through sponsoring different groups of people, and I'm currently the sponsor of our black and minority ethnic network at work, you hear about a different set of challenges. So um, that, that you would never you would never have thought of or realised that people were, were suffering from. So it's and it's a responsibility on everybody in the workplace mm. to be alert to that and um, offer people courtesy and listening and attempt to understand in both directions. Most people don't set out to make life unpleasant for their colleagues they're more likely oblivious but it's how you respond when you've been oblivious and then somebody points it out to you that makes the difference when you came into the met office did you feel there was a big culture change required there or did you come into a place that was already fairly open or i think that the met office had already done a lot of good work on diversity and particularly on gender um yeah. so they already had an athena swan award they right. had a great class lift program for female talent actually compared with defence, weather and climate attracts a lot of um, female scientists and our, in our intake at graduate level is 60% female at the moment, which is brilliant. Although we do have a leaky pipeline, so it's not 60% in our upper levels. So I think we're 40% overall female. Um, where I did see, because we are down in the southwest, and it's why I sponsor the BAME network, um, mm. is we weren't so good on social diversity and ethnicity because that was we, we tended to draw locally and particularly with covid now and the opportunity to um, work anywhere in the country um, we've got a great opportunity to draw from a wider talent base which is good for us but also to be more representative of the community at large um, so that's something we've been working on and we've strengthened our employee networks and given them executive sponsors published our diversity strategy set ourselves targets um, in all those aspects um, and actually switched from Athena Swan to investors in diversity again because it covers the full range of characteristics and not just gender. Well, your numbers sound pretty impressive anyway, but you're clearly taking that very seriously. Yeah, not 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 so good on ethnicity. Okay. <laughs> definitely, definitely not so well represented. Camille. If if we were a London-based organisation, I'm sure we would be better. But it's something we need to work on. Interesting. Oh, thank you for that. I'd like one more. I'd like to ask you one more question. People that you found inspirational, whether in your uh, in your computing career or whatever, really, or you look back on and think, yeah, they were helpful for me. Well, I've been blessed with some really great managers and mentors. If I had to single out one person, I think it would be Dame Frances Saunders, who was the first female chief exec of DSTL when I was there, okay. um, and had come up actually the apprenticeship route, I believe. Um, so a uh, really impressive lady. Things about the way she led and her authenticity and the way she spoke with and listened to staff and set a clear direction certainly have stayed with me. Lovely. Thank you for that. Uh, is there anything you would have would like to, to say, Penny, that we missed? touch on the one other aspect that I'm really proud of and that I think fits into the IT for the good of society which mm -hmm. is the Met Office's own net zero mission. We really feel that we should be walking the walk and leading by example here um, and not leaving the difficult bits to other people and we also feel that as we become a net zero organisation we ought to do that in a really evidence-based way for both being able to demonstrate it and for knowing how we're going to get there. So we have set ourselves the target of being net zero by 2030 and we're already well on, on that route. And one of the first things we did was switch our existing supercomputer to renewables because okay. actually supercomputing the power it consumes is the dirty secret of weather and climate modelling. And yes. 
Um, <laughs> and we're now grappling with um, some of the harder things like our supply chain emissions, which include several other people's supercomputers. Also our travel, which has been dead easy during COVID because no one's flown anywhere, but we do have significant international roles and international missions, um, both in the organisations like the World Meteorological Organisation and with our Met Office partners around the world, but also in our overseas development. And so we're cutting down our travel about 10% a year. Um, we think we will have to offset about the last 12-15% of our carbon in 2030. We can't see ourselves getting actually to naught. And we're also looking then at what is a responsible offset option for us. But we're really taking that seriously and we try to set an example there. And people don't realise often just how much carbon their internet and things burn and their computer use. So um, anything that your membership can do to drive that in the right direction can only be a good thing. Of course, there's a balance for you, isn't there? You need the compute to be able to have the beneficial effect. Uh, we, we absolutely do. Um, we rely on the suppliers to make it as efficient as they can. Mm. Um, and then we've got to power it in the right way. But then there's there's all the other aspects of how we heat our building and, and those. But um, they, they, they all came into focus when the compute didn't dwarf our carbon usage because we switched it to uh, switched green energy. That's been really interesting. Professor Penny Ensby, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Dengue fever.